Welcome to Going for the Green on the Fantasy Sports Network, brought to you by the guys at DailyRoto.com. It's Masters Week. I'm Mike Leone here with Drew Dinkmeyer, Colin Drew. We're excited to talk about the Masters Week, but we definitely want to talk about the product over at DailyRoto.com. we got a lot of promotions running this week because it's Masters Week, and just looking at our product is something we're very proud of. We have a bunch of tools for fantasy and for betting, uh, no matter what you're interested in. For fantasy, of course, we have DraftKings and FanDuel projections. We have finish probabilities. We have an optimizer that goes with our fantasy model. Colin on the show with me does ownership projections, which is going to be huge this week if you're playing in any of the big tournaments, particularly the Millie Maker over on DraftKings. And then just some additional research tools. We've got a course history trends thing, which uh, we won't use this week because we don't have the master shot link data, but uh, on most weeks that'll be up and running. We've got a recent strokes gain, so you can check out guys' recent form, whether it's strokes gain tee to green, approach, putting, what have you. We have it all broken down. So we're really excited about this product, and if you want to use this product, I'm going to throw it over to Colin so he can tell you how you can get it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped this week. Um, obviously, the fantasy tools, but I think the betting tools will be really fun to play around with this week, too, especially for some of the you know people who are listening who don't play every week. And if you do want access, we're running a promo. So $1 trial membership with the promo code MASTERS this week. Um, it will convert to a full paid membership at the end of the week, but it's a chance to try us out for one buck. Uh, so definitely not going to get a better uh, bargain from us uh, during the fantasy golf season. So if you've been, you know, sitting on the sidelines and thinking about trying out the tools, I definitely think that you should head over to dailyroto.com slash premium and make sure to enter the promo masters to get access for a dollar. All right, and before we get into the Masters, let's do a quick recap of the Houston Open, which had a pretty exciting finish with the playoff between Ian Poulter and Bo Hostler. Uh, Poulter is on my season-long team for the internal Daily Roto League, so I was cheering pretty heavily for that. Sunk a 20-foot putt, around a 20-foot putt on the 18th green to birdie and force that playoff, and then Bo just made a mess of the hole in the playoff, which uh, made it pretty easy for Poulter to win, and with that, he gets into the Masters. Uh, Drew, did you have any takeaways from the Houston Open? I got slaughtered in DFS, so it wasn't. Uh, it was. I didn't even watch much of the weekend because my teams were that bad. I, I keep hitting this formula of way overweight the field on five of sixes and way underweight on six of sixes. That is not a particularly profitable uh, formula for GPPs. So um, I didn't have any big takeaways. I think a lot of the people, you know, a lot of the narratives about players using the Houston Open to like tune up and maybe, um, you know, not. Uh, play at the the highest levels kind of came to fruition with like Phil's really up and down rounds and Justin Rose and Ricky Fowler kind of fading over the weekend a little bit. Most of the competition up top was for those guys who, you know, are, were playing to try to get their first wins on tour with the exception of Jordan Spieth. Uh, so the Spieth will be a very interesting topic this week, uh, given the elite course history at the Masters, given how weird the form has been with the tee to green game being so good and the putting being so bad, very different from what we've seen um, but those are some of my quick takeaways from the Houston Open and I know Poulter had received this false confirmation that he was going to get the Masters invite so someone who's a bit of a lightning rod Colin uh, people have pretty strong takes on Ian Poulter uh, it, but I, I feel like it was good to get him in so, you know someone on Twitter is posting how golf needs its heels you've got Patrick Reed Ian Poulter it keeps it more exciting and the, the false confirmation thing did kind of stink for him so nice to see him in yeah, yeah, definitely. And it'll be interesting to see where he ends up pricing. Um, I, I feel like they'll end up pricing him appropriately, right? Because the early pricing, obviously, some guys 
have much better odds and therefore are underpriced compared to when things were released. So I think that'll be interesting. Um, Try not to lean too heavily on last week's results as far as like impacting the projections and things like that. So I don't think, you know, you need to get off of Justin Rose just because he struggled a little bit on the weekend. Um, so in, in general, I think the not taking away too much uh, from last week's event, which is fitting because I didn't take away too much of my entry fees either. <laughs> All right, let, let's transfer over to the Masters, what everyone's listening for. And we're going to talk about the course first to set up. Then we'll have a betting segment. Then we'll get into some cash game stuff. And then a lot of talk around GPP since that's where the money's going to be this week in particular. So looking at the overview of the course and the cut, the big thing here too is the cut is top 50. You've only got, a Colin, was it 87 entrants do we have? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, something, something in the high 80s. So 60 of those, or 50 of those guys are going to make the cut, more than half the field. But you've also got another wrinkle with the Masters. If you're within 10 strokes of the leader, you make the cut. So way more than 50 guys could end up making the cut if the leader doesn't jump out that far ahead. It also makes the cut spots pretty interesting. You've got a few different things to track on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and give you some hope of getting your 6-6 to lineups through, which is going to be important this week with that cut. Uh, you're going to see a lot of teams with 6-6. to And last year, per at Cut Sweats, you can find them on Twitter. They will track your teams throughout the weekend if you want to use them on DraftKings to tell you your current percentage of guys through the cut, you know, what that looks like versus the field, but 40% of teams around got six to six through the cut last year. So that's going to dominate the conversation a bit. But as far as the course particulars, it's at Augusta National, as it always is. It's a par 72, 7,435-yard course, averages about 1.4 strokes above par since 2010, and 13th in par adjusted distance. And one of the interesting things we got from the data golf guys is that the 13th hole, Azalea, which Sergio Garcia named his daughter after, he had that difficult par save in the final round there last year en route to his victory, accounts for a lot of the variance in golfer scores. I think it was over 8%, whereas if everything was equal, it would be around uh, 5.5% or so. So that's real-life golfer scores. It has a lot of variance, but it affects DraftKings quite a bit, too. 45% of the DraftKings scoring points happen on the par fives, with 13, 14, 15 providing the best opportunity for a birdie streak. So, And Azalea is one of those par fives that accounts for a lot of the DK scoring. And Colin, you took a look at trying to figure out the course fit for Augusta. And a lot of times people do stuff that's more retroactive and descriptive and not predictive because they look at the strokes gained uh, at the particular tournament, which is difficult to do because the master's data is tough to find. But you actually looked at where guys were ranked in strokes gained metrics prior to the tournament for that current year and then saw how they've done in past masters. Yeah, so what I had done, and I had done something similar last year as well, um, but was basically aggregate the master's data from 2010 to present and then look at the tour data for strokes gained leading into the Masters. So a lot of people when they do it are looking at end of the year results for 2017 and they're saying this is how those results correlate to the Masters, but I don't, I don't know what the end results of 2018 are going to be. So I think that's why it's important just to look at the data that you do have available. Um, and the one thing that definitely stood out as being a strong signal every year was strokes gained off the tee. And that actually carried the heaviest weight in aggregate, uh, which mo- most weeks we would expect, you know, obviously the strokes gained approach stat is one that jumps out. And so there were a couple years where the approach outweighed the, the off the tee, but off the tee was definitely the most consistent um, on a yearly basis. I think the other thing that really jumped out 
to me was that a lot of the talk about Augusta, right, is about the putting surfaces where which are extremely challenging. And then um, obviously the course is difficult in general. And so a lot of people talking about short game and and those things definitely matter. Um, and they're going to matter as far as who ends up on the leaderboard. But as far as predictive value, they didn't end up holding a lot of value, I think. You know, you think about some of the past Masters champions, whether it's Sergio Garcia or Bubba Watson, and those aren't guys that are well known for their short game. And so um, the guys who have good tee to green game and are hitting the greens uh, more often than not pop up higher on the Augusta leaderboard. And I definitely think that's going to hold true even more so for DraftKings scoring. Like you mentioned, so many of the, the points for score points are gained on those par fives, which will end up being critical. Um, the only other thing I wanted to, to say, you mentioned Sergio Garcia named his daughter after Azalea, uh, which I, I just can't imagine if I ever had a kid that I'd name her after a par. Like, you got to at least go for a <laughs> hole where you made an eagle or a hole-in-one or a birdie, right? It, it was quite the par, though, because I had 100% Sergio Garcia in the Millie Maker last year. And, you know, I, I took him largely because I hate this narrative around guys that are chokes and whatnot when they're really good golfers and just because of variants they haven't won. But then Sergio, I don't remember if he made a bogey before that, but he w- he was in bad shape on that par five. And I was like starting to doubt myself. I was like, okay, everybody was right. This is Sergio is going to choke. This is bad. And then he, he comes out with that par. So yeah, it, it's a good point, Colin, you know, would you name your daughter or your son after a par, but it was one heck of a par there for Sergio. Uh, and you can find Colin's article there on dailyroto.com. Some names like in the lower tier, you've got Kevin Chappell, Brendan Steele, some good guys that are off that list that are going to be lower price. So we'll give you some tidbits there, but you can read the rest of the article again on dailyroto.com. Um, we do, you know, speaking of narratives, we do have some narratives uh, at Augusta. One of the narratives that, again, I'm not a big fan of. I don't put a lot of stock into it. Drew, I want to get your thoughts. But it's this narrative around first-timers at Augusta that you can't win your first time here. We've seen it happen, not a lot. You know, Fuzzy Zeller in 1979, Danny Willett a couple of years ago. But in my opinion, it's not a big deal. Uh, Drew, what do you think? Yeah, it's not something I pay attention to. And always when you get kind of these narratives around, you have to kind of think through the data and whether it makes sense or not. And in the case of like most first timers at Augusta are, you know, generally players that are kind of like on the fringe of making majors or they're amateurs. You know, you get like a lot of uh, a few amateurs in these fields as well. And so the quality of those players compared to, you know, a major where it's loaded with all the best players in the world, of course they're not going to win very often. Like, um, you know, a normal distribution or, excuse me, a normal sampling of, uh, you know, players of that skill level is probably going to win on, on par with the results that we've had, you know, like less than 1% of the time. Um, that's, that's kind of what's going to happen normally anyway. So, you know, you look at some of the first timers who are, you know, historically very strong golfers. And we had like Jordan Spieth finish second, Jason Day finish second, Paul Casey finish sixth, Adam Scott finish ninth. And, you know, there's a bunch of guys in the, in the twenties as well. It's not to say that first timers cannot perform well. It's just that the majority of the people making up the sample of first timers aren't particularly great you know, level golfers that you would expect to do well anyway. Yeah, and on top of that, even the guys that are good golfers, when they're first-timers, that's probably them not at their peak, right? You you can only be a first-timer once, and you're probably not at your 
peak where you're ever going to be as a golfer. And if you are a good golfer, as you noted, you can put up some high-end finishes. So we do have some first-timers. I'm a big Tony Finau fan. I'm, I'm excited to see what he's going to do. He, to me, he's the one that I'm looking at most. Patrick Cantley is technically a second-timer but hasn't played uh, in a handful of years. You've got Zender Softley, who's name I'm sure I just did not do very well with right there but he's someone that I know on DFS and golf betting Twitter seems to be really high on so uh, not exactly a murderer's row of first timers but there are some interesting names in there so uh, let's let's move on from one narrative to another narrative and the course history narrative which is something that gets talked about a lot in golf DFS and betting circles. How, you know, does course history matter? How much does it matter? Uh, the guys at Data Golf who power our projection did a really good article on it. They think it matters only a really little bit. Uh, and you'll see in our fantasy projections the default weight on course history is about 5%, but it is customizable, so you can slide that up to be a higher weight in how the projections are working if you believe in it more. But we do have some guys this year that have really good course histories. Colin, you know, starting up top with Jordan Spieth, who's finished second. He's won. He finished second again when he sort of melted down versus Danny Will and then finished 11th last year. Yeah, and I think course history, it's, sometimes it's just like it would be pretty boring if you just had a podcast and all you did was talk about long-term adjusted round score over and over <laughs> again. So some of it's to fill the fill the airways, and it's it's interesting to talk about. Like I said, I, I think, you know, for me, I'm thinking more about course fit in general than I think about course history. But um, obviously there are guys that, that have strong course history. Tiger, you know, you can't get away from that. Only missed one cut here and in, in finished inside the top 10, 13 times in addition to four wins. And um, Bubba, you know, has – I think people think of it as having good history because he's won twice, but those were his only top 10s here. Uh, and the rest of the golfers, like one of the things we talk about is it's rare that you find a guy with elite course history at a place that is a bad golfer. So you look at like Justin Rose has done well here, Rory, Adam Scott, Matt Kuchar. Like these are guys that I feel like we're talking about as having good course history at – most of the courses on tour. Um, I definitely think that the, for, for me, it's kind of thinking more about the off the tee game um, and tee to green uh, in the course fit than it is about the course history of specific golfers. I think the other thing we've talked about before is just that course history in general is factored into some of the Vegas odds. It is something that people talk about in tout, um, you know, a good bit on their podcast. And so it drives ownership too. So even when there's maybe a compelling reason to use somebody because of their course history, there's also usually a stronger argument to not use them because of how highly owned they're going to be. You didn't even get to talk about Fred Couples' course history, Colin. I mean, <laughs> 29 for 32, 11 top 10s, top 20 in six of his last seven appearances. The Fred Couples at the Masters uh, conversation is one that I'm here for because it's the only time we talk about Fred Couples all year long. And the conversation almost always goes like this. Fred Couples is interesting because of course history, but he's probably not a great play in like Millie Makers and stuff because he's not going to finish in the top 15 or the top 10 and you need the, you know, six players in the top 10, the top 15 to, to win. But he's got these six in the last seven appearances in the top 20. The problem is, you know, as each year gets older for Fred, uh, you have to wonder how far away from um, his, his true baseline skill set is. So have you played Fred Couples in recent years and will you guys play Fred Couples this year? I played Fred Couples the very first time I played, and it was, I think, off your recommendation, Drew, at the when it was back on Draft Street, when Draft Street oh, yeah. had golf. And he was actually doing pretty well. I think it was the year Spieth ended up winning 
Um, but I, I was actually leading a GPP going into the final day. Didn't have speed, so it didn't it didn't end up well. But had Freddie Couples then. But I will not play him at all this week. You will not find him on any of my teams. Colin, is he going to be on any of your teams? I mean, I can't imagine that he will be. I, I think, like, I feel like even when he has had these good finishes, you know, it's because he finds a way to avoid the bogeys and he still gets outscored on DraftKings by the guys who finish around him. Uh, I don't have last year's winning millionaire maker lineup in front of me, unfortunately, because I didn't finish in second place. So, Mike, maybe you have a screenshot of the lineup that beat you. But um, I was looking at some older stuff and he wasn't on the winning lineups, even in some of those the good years he had. <laughs> Yeah, the thing the thing with Freddie that I always found interesting was uh, he seems to he seems to hang around the first three rounds and then that final Sunday things tend to fall fall apart or like drift off and the thing that I've always kind of thought as I've been watching is the guy only plays three rounds all year on tours on the senior tour he's not used to playing the fourth round and so that fourth round you know might physically take something away and since you know we are the official podcast of the senior PGA tour since we tout Steve Stricker every week I figured we should go into Fred Couples. All right enough of Fred Couples though let's move on and uh, here we are going for the green on the Fantasy Sports Network, and you really want to know how to make money. So let's talk about uh, you know the best ways to make money, whether you're betting and whether you're playing DFS. We'll talk about the betting side of things. And one of the things we've seen, and there's no difference this week, is one of the best ways if you want to make money betting is really betting these T20 values, some of these longer odds guys, because the markets just seem to be so skewed in in favor of the guys who are the, the better golfers up top. And as a result, it's just very difficult to find a positive expected value bet on a lot of these guys because the odds are just juiced way up so much. But the you know seesaw that you get there is you get some longer odds guys that you can capitalize on. And it works the same way with outright values. It's just hard to bet long shot outright values every week unless you really want to withstand the variance. So, Colin, any of the guys with T20 odds that are sticking out to you? Yeah, and that's one of the things that you can access. Um, we, we have them for our premium members at Daily Roto is the top 20 values. And we compare them, the probabilities from Data Golf to uh, both Sportsbook and Bet365 to identify what we consider to be positive expected value bets or bets that should be profitable over the long run. And usually there are more T21s than outrights. The outrights seem like they have like 40% rake and the T21s have like 10%. So that's why it takes like a crazy outright line to find something that has good value. Um, a couple of the ones that jumped out to me as uh, both having like a, a strong expected value and kind of aligning with my opinions of course fit at Augusta were Jonathan Vegas, Webb Simpson, and Kevin Chappell. Uh, Vegas's odds were at 11 to 1, and the data golf model has him at 17% chance of finishing inside the top 20. Uh, Webb, you're getting 5.5 to 1 with a 33% chance of finishing inside the top 20. And then Chappell getting 4.5 to 1 with a 33% chance of finishing inside the top 20. So all of those uh, were really strong positive expected value bets. Um, I also think that some of the stuff that we've been using for uh, our own use in betting that's been fun and should be awesome for the Masters is the head-to-head and three-ball tools. Um, have, have you experimented with any of those? I've definitely used the head-to-head stuff. I know each week we kind of have a little pool together with each other, and we try and identify those. And the head-to-heads are a lot of fun because you can bet them each day. You can bet for the tournament, and you can also bet for the round, and you can set that up on DailyRoto.com using the data golf tools that they power. 
and those are a lot of fun. Drew, I know you like sifting through the head-to-heads. Um, I haven't looked at those early lines yet, so I don't have any in particular, but that's something that I always check the morning of uh, just because it's a lot of fun, quite frankly. Yeah, the head-to-head tools and now having the three-ball access as well are really helpful in trying to kind of sort through. And I like with the head-to-head tools the fact that you can you know choose by round or by by tournament and kind of see the different probabilities. Uh, I haven't sorted through those yet. I'm sure there will be you know in line with projections opportunities to take advantage of. I did want to mention uh, my favorite uh, T20 is Brennan Steele, who's kind of in that range with Kevin Chapel and um, Pat Perez. The Vegas one is crazy that he's like 11 to one and all these other guys are more like four and a half to five to one. Um, also at 11 to one is Fred Couples. Yeah, and you mentioned Steele. If you're looking at outrights, again, you know, it's tougher to find those and you got to withstand some more variance. You know, most of the guys that get identified as positive expected value guys are guys that have you know, less than a 2% chance of winning where we've got them between a one and 2% chance of winning uh, according to the data golf odds and the sports books have an implied odds of more like, you know, 0.7%. So, you're getting double the, the actual odds, which is really good, but it's still not likely to happen. But Steele is one of those good bets. Francesco Molinari, who I took some heat on uh, over at the uh, DraftKings show with Pat Mayo, uh, because I seem to always tout Francesco Molinari. It pops there as well. But um, let's move on from the betting stuff and get into DFS, uh, what most of our audience wants to listen to. And let's talk about game selection. You know, we want to make money, but how does the best way to go about making money this week? Because there's the millionaire maker, which, you know, I'm going to play because I like the high risk, high reward strategy there. But if you're looking to grind out expected value, it's not the best game. Drew, I know you said uh, the percentage of the prize pool that gets paid out to first place and the top 10 for a tournament that involves like 200,000 plus people is rather crazy. Yeah, it's about uh, 28.5% of the pool goes to first and then 39 and a quarter percent is the top 10. So of the top 10, um, you know, the overwhelming amount of the prize pool is up in first, which if you finish uh, first like me is great in football season. If you finish second like Mike, it's less great in uh, in golf season. Um, it's a it's a high variance tournament. It's not that the EV is any different than like a normal GPP. It's just that you need a lot more uh, simulations of that tournament to realize it. And so it's, it just takes longer to kind of get there. Um, I think it's a great week on these Masters weeks with kind of softer pricing in general. I, I know there's actually, I think there's some debate about this, but I think it's always a great week for cash games um, and head-to-heads. And I try to post a lot of head-to-heads um, during the Masters. I think you get a little bit more casual fan base kind of playing on the whole. They'll say, hey, you know, I'm going to put a $20 entry in the Millie Maker. Let me enter a $20, you know, head-to-head to cover that as well. So if I win my head-to-head, I, I don't lose money on the week type thing. Um, I find the the fact that the pricing is soft, yes, it makes it difficult to necessarily make bad teams, but I still think there are advantages to make really good teams. And I think a lot of times the more casual uh, you know, players will try to build through their favorite players as opposed to necessarily the best plays. And so I find it, you know, in these, in these majors weeks, uh, pretty valuable to try to play a little bit higher percentage of cash games than I usually do. Cause I think you're getting a little bit more of a new audience, um, throwing occasional, uh, dollars into those games as well. That, that makes sense if you're disciplined and you haven't already signed up your entire bankroll for tournaments, which is, you know, <laughs> not advised. But some of us, not naming names, me, uh, may have done that. And 
I am in one high stakes tournament that I'll single entry, and I do want to know. I think sometimes the high stakes tournaments in a, in a lot of sports mm-hmm. are the sharkiest tournaments, and they're very difficult to play. My semi hot take is that in golf, that's not necessarily the case because I think there's a lot of variance that isn't accounted for, and the ownerships get really, really condensed there. That if you're willing to withstand the variance, which can be hard to do in a high stakes tournament because you're putting down a lot of dough and you might not win for several weeks at a time. Um, you, you can actually have some edge there. But of the three of us, I think Colin is usually, quite frankly, the sharpest at picking out the tournaments that fit best in terms of payout structure and strategy needed to win. And, Colin, I know as a part of that, you're often looking at the single entry and three max tournaments. Yeah, I mean, I haven't won a millionaire maker like Drew or come in second one like you yet. So Drew kind of <laughs> dug me for coming came coming in second. I'm just saying it's it's not as it's not as fortunate. The prize pool does not reward you as heavily as it would for second place in a lot of other GPPs. That's all I'm saying. You're saying I can't but win that I'm capped at second. You are the Sergio of the Millie Maker. Well, as the uh, as the knit of the group, I guess I think that the hundred fifty dollars three max is the best GPP that I've found. Two hundred thousand dollar prize pool. Uh, it is the three max, and it's a like slightly higher buy-in, so the rake is reduced below ten percent. And I think we'll have a, a nice um, casual field in it this week. And those are all the things that you're trying to look at when you're looking at contests. Is like who else is entering this contest? What's the rake? And then what's the payout structure like? And um, to still get 30K up top for first place, like 20K drop to second, 10K drop to third. It's pretty balanced as far as um, the payout structure up top. And I think that makes it uh, a lot easier to withstand if you are finishing in second into not a $900,000 swing. Um, obviously, you you'd only get so many opportunities in golf to chase a million-dollar prize pool. So there's still, like, the inner degen in me is trying to trying to convince me to enter a bunch of lineups in there and uh, maybe I'll just have a, a little variance conversation with my wife before I fire in 100 or something. <laughs> Colin's trying to win the 5 for 595 at Wendy's. Drew and I are trying to get steak at the Ritz-Carlton. So you you tell me which is better, Colin. I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah, obviously um, it is a tough week because you do want to balance the fact that you have these big prize pools and you, there is an alert to chasing them. and. You, you, no matter what you do, you want to be smart. You never want to spend more money than you're willing to risk on a week. But, but I do think there's probably a balance to be had where you can take some shots that maybe you normally wouldn't, but you can also take advantage of the expected value of the week and, and get your edge on. And Drew, you said you think there's an edge in cash games. So let's talk about cash games. You know, normally we talk a lot about GPPs, and we certainly will, but cash games, you know, what are you trying to do this week? I guess for each of you, you know, one to two guys that you think you need to have in cash and then maybe one either player that you, you're not going to have that you're either worried about or maybe just a specific roster construction type that you want to make sure you follow in cash. I'll start with Drew. Yeah, I would say that I think the thing that's valuable about cash games this week is that there's so many really strong plays and really like high probabilities to top 20 to top 10 that are priced down because of the strength of the field as a whole. So I think, you know, the mid eights and the low nines is an area to attack aggressively in cash games. And then you don't, you know, you're forgoing guys like Jordan Spieth, you're forgoing Tiger Woods, you're forgoing, uh, you know, uh, Dustin Johnson and some players with higher win probability, but you're building lineups that are really, really likely to get six of six across with kind of the, you know, top 50 and, and the within 10 rule applying. And 
in cash games this week, you're going to need six to six most likely. I mean, maybe in some head to head, you'll find somebody that you have an opponent that's five to six. But I think that there's a huge edge in the likelihood of six to six teams you can create by creating a little bit more balanced rosters uh, through the upper mid tier. So if you were to ask me like two guys that I'm looking at really, really strongly for cash games this week, the two guys that jump out to me would be Justin Rose and Sergio Garcia. And for me, I'm along those same lines as you. The two guys for me are Justin Rose and Paul Casey. I'm really on a big Paul Casey kick. Uh, his 40-round moving strokes gained average is right in line with Jordan Spieth, basically, which, which is pretty crazy. Of course, some of that is due to Spieth not putting as well, which is more variant. But I think Paul Casey's just someone who's underpriced, who's a really good option. And, Drew, to your point, you know, not only are you maximizing your chances to 6-6, six to six, but it's not like you're killing upside with these balanced lineups when you can make lineups with, you know, Kuchar, uh, you know, Cantlay, a guy or projections like as your worst golfer. It's not like you're killing your upside there. So, uh, Colin, let's shoot it over to you for your thoughts. No, I mean, I think that's right. I, you guys kind of honed in on the guys. I think, like, Casey and Rose would be the the way that I kind of go about starting things. But you definitely have the the Kuchers. And I, I think I'd probably end up dipping down into the uh, low 7K or $6,900 range just because if you do that, then you can feel really solid about the rest of your roster. And it seems like that's, um, you know, even in, like, a smaller – I think there's ownership considerations with some of those guys. We'll get into that a little bit later. But I think even in, like, a single entry or smaller field GPPs, that, that type of route might give you the highest probability to get all six golfers inside of the top 20. Yeah, and as we sort of segue to the GPP conversation, I've gotten a lot more questions recently about, you know, intentionally using chalkier players in cash games. And it's something where I always say, just make the best lineup you can. Don't worry about the chalk. But on a week like this week where I might have to fade Justin Rose in tournaments because he's going to be so high-owned, you know, I'm I'm probably going to be putting a lot of emphasis on playing him in chalk, especially the fades that I think are good values but just going to be over-owned. You know, that's when I'm definitely going to use my tiebreaker in cash. Whereas sometimes there's going to be high-owned guys, and Bubba Watson's one of them as we move into the tournament strategy that I'm not sure if he's a good value relative to the golfers at other prices. So he's not someone that I'll force in cash games just because he's chalky and I'm going to take an underweight tournaments. The issue there you run into is if Bubba has a huge week, not only are you losing your tournaments, but you're losing your cash games. So I don't know if either of you guys have thoughts on uh, that the ownership aspect of making cash game lineups. I think it's always important to consider – all of your investments on a given week is almost a total portfolio. And so it certainly makes sense to take some of the, uh, to, to correlate your decisions to the types of tournaments that you're playing or the types of games you're playing, I should say. So what you're saying is I'm more likely to take the higher owned, lower risk player in the format that rewards um, similarly across the, the set, like a double up where the top five out of 10 are, are doubling up, um, or 50, 50, I should say, in that case, five out of 10. Um, you're saying I'm more likely to take the, the higher owned lower variance play in the format that rewards with lower, uh, structure payouts for higher probability performance. That makes all the sense in the world. And then in tournaments on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum where tournaments often are top weighted, um, even in the best structured tournaments, most of them have at least like 10% of the prize pool going to the very first spot. It makes sense to try to structure lineups in the sense that 
takes advantage of the prize pool structure as well, which means the really high-owned players you likely want to have underweight positions to or fades on, and the really low-owned players that you think are good or comparable from a projection standpoint, you want to have overweights to. So I think that makes all the sense in the world in terms of trying to make sure that you're considering your overall portfolio in your cash games and your tournaments, and you're adjusting the line of construction based on the game type that you're playing. All right, let's talk MME strategy. We've got a pretty loose outline for the, the tournament section. Uh, we'll start with MME because if you're you know, listening to this, good chance you're in you know, maybe the Millie Maker or something like that. And for me, you have to differentiate yourself from the field somewhere. You're not going to win a million dollars, for example, playing chalk across the board. So the, the first thing that I like to do in the Millie Maker, and I don't know if you guys agree, but I will not make teams more than 49700 for two reasons. One, just a huge amount of the entries. Um, I mean, you're talking like 200,000 entries, and I think something like, I don't want to put the exact percentage, but I think it's more than 80% are making. Yeah, it's, it's over 90% make less yeah. that, that, that are within 100 or 200 of the full salary cap. Yeah, which so is so... So right away, I'll let you follow up in a second, Colin. Right away, you're getting rid of the uniques. You're, you're improving your chances of having unique lineups, even if you do have some chalk in your lineup. And secondly, the pricing's so loose on this week that I don't even think you're really giving up that much in terms of you know raw expected value. Whereas on another week, I wouldn't do this because you might need to eke out uh, each of those dollars. But Colin, I know you had something to jump in here on. Yeah, I think what you, ultimately what you said you're trying to do is just avoid duplicating lineups. And so that's one way that you can go about doing that. I think the other way you can just go about doing it, and one of the things that you can actually do within our optimizer at Daily Roto is just set a cap on the total ownership of your lineup. And so I think by doing that, you could find 50K you know, salary lineups that still have a low total ownership and therefore are really highly likely to be unique because – the, the average ownership of the golfers isn't high. And so if you were to set, um, you know, the ownership cap at like 75% or something, then you're on average, you're going to get like 12% or so, uh, 12.5% ownership on each of your golfers. But if you are taking a chalky player like a Justin Rose or, or a Bubba Watson or Tiger, like it's going to pair them up with guys that are 2%, 3% owned. And so then you can still be comfortable at, even though you might be using the full salary cap and you might be using chalky golfers that, in aggregate, your total lineup is still unique. And so I think that's one of the underrated features about the optimizer that we have um, is just the ability to constrain ownership. Yeah, and for me, in differentiating yourself from the field in terms of your actual player pool, you know, last year I went 100% Sergio Garcia. I'm debating if I want to go 100% one player this year. The pros to that are if you nail that player, you've got you know X amount of potential combinations to hit the nuts, and you also – can play some chalkier players around it just because you're so overweight, such an important player. The cons are you're heavily invested in one player. So another way to do it is to make a couple of, of tough fades. And early ownership, I think we have Justin Rose as the highest projected golfer. Drew, I know you did a segment for Pat Mayo's show where you picked Justin Rose as the winner, uh, and then he put together kind of a funny clip because about 10 other people picked Justin Rose as the winner. 
Yeah, it's it's one of the challenges of doing the content without having heard, you know, doing it early. So that Pat had to produce this huge show that that he does, which is awesome for the DFS golf community and the betting community and whatnot. Uh, but he was asking for those clips, you know, a week or two in advance. And so you you, you put the clips together, you send it in, you're all excited, and then you're uh, you're part of a, a gag reel of chalk, which is not surprising given uh, how I tend to play in the past is that I tend to find my way to chalk uh, whether I intend to or not. So uh, predicting Justin Rose as the winner was apparently not very unique. I was debating uh, between Justin Rose and uh, Paul Casey, and I now wish I had gone to Paul Casey because that would have been a little more unique. <laughs> yeah, and the difficult part, though, with fading Rose is he's just such a, a really good play. And uh, there's a couple other guys that I'm not sure if they are super good plays that I feel a bit better about fading, but I'm also scared that we're just wrong because it's difficult to count for the data. That's Tiger Woods and Bubba Watson, Colin, because you know Tiger is probably the most challenging player to project, and then Bubba had a really bad year last year that could have been for a, you know a variety of reasons, whether it was the ball he was playing, whether it was health stuff. Uh, so who are you looking to fade? If you were entering, I know you don't mass multi-enter as much, but if you were, is there someone that, and even your three maxes that you would big fade? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's easier to justify like a, a fade of a guy who's supremely underpriced in the millionaire maker where so much has to go right and for him to appear on the optimal lineup. And so I think if I do play that tournament, that Justin Rose would be a pretty easy fade uh, just because there's also comparable values that are priced nearby him. So that's the couple of things you're looking at. And that's why I like to use, uh, call it like the leverage score, but basically comparing our T20 odds to the ownership projections to to help sort through that when a guy might be over-owned or under-owned compared to the guys around him. And with Rose, you have some really good pivots that are right nearby that are going to be at a fraction of the ownership. So I know someone like John Rahm, we haven't heard from in a little while, uh, but I think that you know his game, TD Green, is set up well at Augusta and he can score well from a DraftKings perspective. I think that someone who's flying crazily under the radar is Jason Day, who is one of the huge favorites in the top 20 odds of the data golf probability model. Uh, the fantasy model rates him well as rates him well in addition. And he's coming in at possibly uh, single digit ownership, just based on some of the guys priced around. So I think um, Rose is most, the mo- guy I'm most likely to fade. It's a little bit harder to full fade in like a three max type format uh, where maybe the, the like return is not as great. Um, and the, the min cash equity is a little bit higher. So still struggling there, but I would definitely fade him in MME. Yeah. I like the idea behind Rom and day. I know Ben from fan Vice, who I did the DraftKings show uh, preview show with Mayo. He also liked that type of start in this nine K range could go somewhat uh, under owned with the exception of course, of Justin Rose, who's going to carry massive chalk, uh, let's let's start talking about some guys that we do want to play though. Talked about some fades. Uh, we've got about you know ten to fifteen minutes left here. We got some questions at the end of the show we want to get into. So uh, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna find my way to Tony Finau. I just can't help myself. The initial look at projected ownership now this changes a lot is around eight percent on Finau, and I just think he's a big upside guy. He's got the length off the tee. He's someone that when he's going right is gonna make a lot of birdies. So. Uh, and that's one thing I saw, you know, I think second in the million maker, you would have thought that last year that you would have had to have basically one through six, but I had, you know, backdoor top 10 from Hideki. I think it was a backdoor top 15 from Keimer. And those guys just scored really well from a DK perspective that, 
they were not in the optimal like finish point lineup, but they did pretty well. So the DK scoring is still going to matter. Uh, Drew, who you know, maybe even some low, eh, any price range. Who are some guys you're looking to target? Yeah, I think another guy that kind of stands out to me as priced differently, and this is a situation where I think the course history has priced him down in a in a respect is Henrik Stenson, who doesn't have an immense course history at the Masters that would be representative of some of the other top players, but now he's down below 8,000. And I think as a result, even if you think he is a worse golfer um, on on Augusta National than most other courses, I think the price is taking that into account, and the ownership doesn't seem to be gravitating towards him. Um, early ownership projections from Colin have him around like 12%, 13%. I think that's a pretty good price tag to be able to attack in the three max area. And for me, like the three max and the single entry GPPs, I'm basically trying, to, I'm not trying to find plays that necessarily, I, you know, in lo- really large fields are going to be sub five, six percent. I'm trying to find those guys that I think are going to be like sub 15, sub 10 percent in the big max in the big fields, because then I think in the three and the three entry or the single entry there, the ownership's going to get condensed a little bit even more on the top plays. And it'll allow those guys to fall perhaps even a little bit lower. And Henrik is one of those guys that kind of stands out there. Um, I know another guy that's a little bit lower that's going to get lost in the shuffle of all the good plays in the mid sevens is Daniel Berger, uh, who made the cut on the line basically at, uh, at the Houston Open and then rebounded with a really strong weekend. He's just 7,500, and he's projecting at sub-10% ownership as well. Uh, he and Finau are kind of the two guys that I would say in the mid-7s that look pretty interesting from an ownership relative to projection standpoint. Yeah, that's a good point about a guy like Stenson, where in the million maker he's going to get ownership because he's that second tier that people are going to pivot to. Uh, not that he'll be crazy owned, but he'll get some ownership. But, yeah, in, in these smaller field tournaments, a lot of times you can make – like the second best lineup and, you know, just the second pivot off of every different price range have a really, really good lineup uh, and it could end up with pretty low ownership. So I think that's a good point. Another guy that I know our projections really like in this mid seven case range, Patrick Cantlay at $7,600 who we're projecting at sub 10% ownership. And, you know, one of the best values on the week ownership aside, Colin, is he someone you're interested in? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think, um, uh, especially in tournaments interested in him because of that ownership. And because I do think um, between people having questions about his short game uh, and between people considering this, his first trip to Augusta, just because it's the first time really as a pro with like the way that he's been playing recently uh, that I, I think he's going to go overlooked and that makes for a really strong buy opportunity. I do think one of the things with the value golfers, like you mentioned, you got some really strong DK scores. Uh, we did mention earlier, but I want to reiterate, 45% of the DraftKings scoring points happen on the par fives at Augusta. And 13, 14, and 15 provides the best opportunity for a streak with two par fives and three holes. And so really great for DFS sweats coming down the home stretch between that and the par three. But it's uh, a great opportunity to target scoring. And it's another thing for weekend golf that you're really going to want to target that par five scoring. And so I think when I think about the value guys, I'm definitely uh, wanting to pay attention to make sure that I think they're capable of scoring on those holes. Uh, one of the other guys that I think is rating really well from a leverage score perspective that should go overlooked and underowned in tournaments is Webb Simpson, uh, who has really low ownership projection right now. And he kind of falls in a bit of a dead range for pricing where most of the guys are going under mentioned right now because they're a couple hundred bucks overpriced maybe. 
So I think when people MME, a lot of people are going to start with the 6,900 price that includes Bryson DeChambeau, Kevin Chappell, Pat Perez, Brendan Steele. I think those are all viable plays. But I think when they build multiple rosters, they're just going to be swapping these four guys in and out for each other. And that's going to leave the, the guys who are slightly overpriced in a great buying opportunity. So I think Webb Simpson is one of the guys that I'm looking for. We know that T Green game matters at Augusta, and that's where he excels. Um, and obviously the questions historically have been kind of about his putter, but he's shown flashes of, of uh, you know, improving that this season. So those are, that's, I guess that's one of the guys in MME that I definitely want to go overweight the field on. All right, before we move to the Twitter questions, do either of you have any guys that you want to talk about? Uh, Drew, I'll start with you. I think we have most. Mo- I'm Drew. I was going to say, I got you're, one. You're, I got- you're tall, Drew. You, you can go ahead and talk. I don't, really have, I don't really have much else. Cause I mean, we're like covered by 45 minutes into the golf podcast for the, master, for the Masters, and we haven't recommended Dustin Johnson as a play, which I think is pretty crazy, uh, considering he was the odds-on betting favorite last year. And even as, you know, as, as recently as like a month ago, he was still the favorite for this tournament. I was the only person in Pat Mayo's show to pick Dustin Johnson to win, and I think that shows how far he's going overlooked. So um, you can get a guy who's one of the favorites in the tournament at a really low ownership projection. I think a lot of people are going to be building balanced rosters and trying to jam in the, the Rose, Casey, uh, Bubba, Tiger-type builds. And I think paying up to be contrarian with, with Dustin Johnson is actually going to be a uh, contrarian strategy this week. And he's rating the highest in the leverage score metric, which I have never seen from – uh, tournament favorite as far as I've been producing that metric. That's pretty wild. Uh, so, yeah, definitely keep your eyes on DJ. We have him with the highest projected win probability from the Data Golf finish probability model. So, now, Twitter questions. Uh, this first one's from Philly Dilly, who's in our Slack chat quite a bit, part of our premium offerings with uh, the DailyRoto.com subscription. He asks, besides, or I'm sorry, ah, reading the wrong question. Compared to the world golf rankings, Bubba, Xander, Oppie Barnrat, and Kisner projections look low. Uh, do you guys agree with the projections, or do you think any of them are worth a bump? I'll just say right off the bat, I think Bubba is definitely worth a bump, but I still think even with an appropriate bump, uh, the market's going to be way higher on him than they should be. Uh, Drew, do you have a taste on the other three guys that he mentioned? One thing I wanted to notice is that uh, all four of those players did well in the recent match play event. And when talking to the data golf guys, they basically said, look, there's so much variance associated with the match play event um, just based on like who you end up playing and if they're playing well or not, that we don't weight that significantly hev- heavily in our projection data set, whereas the OWGR considers that you know, a WGC event, which is really heavily weighted. So I think some of the difference in the projections relative to the OWGR is just generally that, hey, Bubba won that match play. He beat Kisner, um, I believe, in the in the finals. Um, Abby Barnrat did really well in that. Xander did pretty well, ended up uh, losing, I believe, to uh, Sergio in the, in, the fir- in the round of 16. So I think all those players are getting a little bit of a boost in the OWGR that aren't reflected in the projections simply because of how well they performed at a really high variance event in the match play. Drew, yeah, and I rapid think, fire, are you bumping any of these guys? Yeah, I'll, I'll bump Bubba a little bit, but I'm not sure I'm going to apply him a lot in DFS just because of the ownership. All right, I'm going to jump in with a question because I, I, I wanted to talk about this, and we, we glossed over it a little bit, but the high percentage is 6-6. Six six. How is that changing your strategy in tournaments? Uh, I know for me, 
there's been weeks where if the six to six for the field is less than the min cash payout of the field, if I'm overweight, I'm like out of min cash in those teams. And I've had weeks where I was like double six out of six, the field. And, but because the field was still greater than the min cash payout, as a result, those sixes being overweight really didn't do much for me because I didn't have enough high end finishes. So Colin, how is that affecting your GPP strategy? Uh, the high probability of six to six is going to make me more likely to chase DK scoring with a higher likelihood that the guys are going to be playing the weekend. So uh, chasing those guys that have the ability to get to the par fives in two is something that I'm going to be targeting for the value picks in addition to, um, you know, I, I think I chase DK scoring more with the value picks, whereas I chase the win probability more with the higher end guys. Um, so I'll probably be bumping Bryson DeChambeau. He's one of the manual adjustments I'll probably be making. All right, a couple of these questions we kind of already answered. Besides Tiger Bub and Phil, who are you most likely to full fade in GPPs? Again, for Millie Maker, for me, it's going to be Justin Rose. Drew, do you have anybody else that you want to full fade outside of those guys? No, no, not not really. There's not a lot of full fades out there for me um, in general. It's going to be spreading kind of ownerships around. Uh, the guys that get 30-plus percent projected ownership is where I start to consider full fades, and Rose is the only guy kind of fitting in that mold so far. That makes sense. We did have from Josh Thomas, what are Larry Mize's chances to win a second green jacket? Uh, we've got him at 0.02%, so not very good. And I'll couple that with another question that says, you know, GP, he's a reader, Sports Squatch says that people always seem to suggest Bernard Langer, Fred Couples, these guys, because they're so cheap, you can save money on and they're going to make the cut. And I think this goes with the 6 to 6 strategy, you know, are you going to play any of those guys? Because I, I don't really see routes to them being on the GPP winning lineup. Talon, do you uh, see that differently? I, I don't see it differently. I feel like in past years, there might have been bigger price discrepancies yeah. where you were getting a much bigger savings, and therefore it allowed you to maybe load up on the top-end range. And I don't, that's, I don't have the data in front of me, but my perception is that the Lower end pricing is more bunched this year, and so even if they do make the cut, it's probably not going to be enough because some of these other guys are going to finish inside the top 20 that are priced nearby them. Yeah, you're okay. getting those guys in the in the low to mid sixes now, and in the high sixes, you've got guys like Kevin Chappell, Pat Perez, like really really good golfers. So it's just it's less of a price advantage this year than it probably has been in past years. Yeah, along those lines, I think. There are very few golfers, if any, I'm going to take below 6,800 was kind of the cutoff I looked at. Uh, and just again, if I'm MME in two, I want, you know, a decent amount of exposure to this small field to a lot of the guys, but I'm going to be harsh in cutting down my list where looking at the data golf probabilities around a 70% chance to make the cut. But, you know, anyone below there, I'm going to be, you know, pretty quick with the chop button and not include them in my player pool. So I'll give you guys 10 seconds each for any final thoughts you want to give. Rapid fire, Colin, your 10 seconds is up. Play DJ. All right. That was less than 10 seconds. Good job. Well done. Drew, can you be as concise as Drew B? No, I cannot. Make sure to just think about uh, ownership and using leverage in your in, in into your advantage in GPPs this week. It is uh, more valuable to be half the field on an ownership guy uh, than you are likely to be two times better at projecting that player to outperform someone with kind of a similar projection. So uh, make sure to be using leverage and ownership to your advantage in GPPs this week. Way more than 10 seconds, but very good advice. That's going to wrap it up for us. Make sure you follow us uh, at Daily Roto on Twitter, and Colin runs that account. He'll shoot out all the promotional stuff. As we said, 
uh, at the top of the show. There's going to be some good deals that you want to take advantage of. And please rate and review us on iTunes. It goes a long way. Uh, Best of luck this week, everyone. I hope someone out there listening takes home a million dollars. We'll see you next week.